Is it working now? How about that? If you have your Bible this morning, if you'll turn to the book of Romans chapter 5, I'd love to have you follow along and join with us. If you're visiting with us, feel free to raise your hand. We are welcoming you to borrow or keep one of these Bibles. We want you to read the Bible. If, um, like me, I didn't grow up in a church that taught the Bible, so this was all new to me. But many of you have studied the Bible for some time now. And one of the things the Bible teaches is, is that we're all to, to grow together. There's not like the elite among Christianity. The Bible says until we all come to maturity in our Christian faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So as we're going through the book of Romans, we really want you to, to, to be able to think through the book as a person, as a family, to teach these truths to your children, to deepen your faith, to strengthen your ability to share the gospel with others, and to continue to grow in grace and knowledge of Christ. It, it's, it transforms us to continue to rehearse and, and study the gospel. So if you're just starting with us, we've just finished a major section of the book. We call this the book of Romans, not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And a lot of people, if they're not exposed to Bible teaching, don't really know what salvation means. It's kind of a scary word, like salvation army. But the scripture says, how shall we neglect if we neglect this great salvation that was first spoken by the Lord Jesus? When Jesus came to earth, he spoke of salvation. And salvation is everything God does to rescue us from, from our sin and from hell and everything he does to bring us to eternal glory with him. And it's a great study to think about all of the doctrines that relate to our salvation. And Romans 1-4 through taught us the primary um, aspect about the gospel is that the gospel deals with our condemnation through justification. So, so we call chapters 1-4 through four the heart of the gospel. In other words, Romans 1-4 through four teaches us how to get right with God. And that's really important because most Americans either don't care about getting right with God or they think getting right with God is something you have to earn or do. And so we learn from Romans 1-3 through three that, number one, we need to get right with God because we've all sinned. Nobody's righteous. Nobody's good enough. Nobody can perform enough good deeds to earn salvation. But instead, the scripture says we're under God's wrath, we're awaiting God's judgment, and there's nothing that we could do about it. But God loved us anyway, and he sent Christ, and we saw in chapter 3 that Christ took care of our sin by dying in our place, by satisfying God's anger, and that God then freely grants justification, forgiveness of sins, to anyone who believes in Christ. And it's remarkable that God would so freely forgive us by his grace, which was costly to him, but free to us. But once you've experienced that, and I think this is where a lot of Christians sort of, sort of stagnate or, or stumble, salvation and the gospel does not just stop with justification. It's not just, okay, you're saved from the penalty of your sin, here's your forgiveness ticket, and then you just go do your thing until Jesus comes back. Salvation not only includes salvation from the penalty of sin, that's justification, but it also includes salvation from the power of sin. The gospel is a transforming message. It changes us so that we become more and more free from sin. And so as we transition in the book to chapters 5 through 8, Paul's going to mention a new word. In chapter 6, he's going to use the word in verse 22, sanctification. Sanctification. So, so I'm already justified, if you're a believer, 
But now I'm being sanctified. And we're going to talk about, well, what does that look like to be progressively changed into the image of Christ? How does God do that? And then ultimately, Paul's going to end this section in chapter 8 when he says we're going to experience glorification. Romans chapter 8 tells us that everyone that God justified, in verse 30 it says, he's one day going to glorify. So you go, okay, so if I've been forgiven and I'm being set free from the power of sin, I'm looking forward to being released from the presence of sin where I'll be perfect and complete and no more sorrow, no more pain. So a number of Bible teachers, and I think this fits well, is to think of chapters 5 through 8 as a second unit. 1 through 4 is the heart of the gospel, how to get right with God. Now 5 through 8, we're going to call the hope of the gospel. Okay, And let me explain what we mean by hope, because in English the word hope is not really certain. Like if, if, if someone purchases a engagement ring. I hope she says yes. I hope I get that promotion. Or little children, I hope I get a new bike. There's not absolute certainty in in that word hope. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's nothing like that. It's a certain confident expectation, but it's always rooted in the future. Okay? The Bible says hope that is seen is not hope. So there's three virtues that God develops in our lives as Christians. Once you become a believer, he wants you to grow in your faith, in your hope, and in your love. And it seems as though what Paul wants to do in Romans 5-8 through is really focus on the hope of being a Christian. So, for example, in verse 2 of chapter 5, he says, We exalt in hope of the glory of God. And then in verse 4, proven character produces hope. And then in verse 5, hope does not disappoint. And so what he begins to do is introduce some themes in this section. He introduces the idea of God's love. This will be the first time he'll mention God's love. He's going to mention suffering. He's going to mention the Holy Spirit helping us. But ultimately, he's going to talk about hope. And as he goes through 5, 6, 7, and 8, he's going to come back to that at the end. In chapter 8, he says, we groan within ourselves right now. We're suffering. But our suffering is not without hope. We long for that day when, when Christ returns. But then he says, but God has given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And we are certain that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so this morning, what we're going to find is that not just being forgiven is a blessing of the gospel, but also being changed and having this idea that one day I will be perfect and I will be full of peace and joy All of that is designed to increase our hope. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said it this way, don't let your hope get plowed under. So in verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to talk about three things related to biblical hope. And the first one is this, that justification, being right with God, should lead to an increasing hope. Okay? Let's pray and then we'll talk about this. Lord, thank you so much that your word is designed to grow us as Christians, to mature us, to change us, to strengthen and comfort us. It equips us to serve you. It encourages us not to give up. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit will cause us to, to, to understand what you want us to learn today, to grow closer to Jesus, to trust and love you more, to serve you and make disciples and be a disciple more effectively, and to eagerly long 
for the completion of our salvation, the hope of glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to start with me in verses 1 through 5. And again, the main thing, if you're taking notes, is that justification brings increasing hope. But he's going to start with justification. He's going to end with hope. But he's going to lead us on a chain how to get there. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. We'll, we'll kind of walk through them, and then we'll come back and, and go in a little more depth. But he says, therefore, having been justified by faith. So let me just say this. If you're not yet sure you're right with God, if you go, I don't know whether I'm saved. I don't know whether I'm justified. We don't want to leave you behind here. But now we're moving to people who have already trusted Jesus. Okay? So most of you, I, I hope that you'll work with your children, help them to make sure they know that they're trusting Christ. Having been justified by faith, now we're going to see the results of that. The first thing he says is we have peace with God. What does that mean to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? So he's going to begin to list benefits that lead to hope. You're justified, you're right with God, you have peace with God. Number two, he says... Through the Lord Jesus, we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so we're going to talk about having been moved from the performance room. We've gotten the key to enter into the presence of God and stand in the grace room. Now I'm in the grace room. Right? But then third, he says, and not only do we have peace and access into the presence of the grace room, but third, he says, we exalt we praise or, or, or we boast or we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. See, this is where he's going. He goes, look, if you're right with God, you have present blessings, but it also it, it causes you to look forward to a greater future blessing. We're looking forward to, what does he mean by the glory of God that, that, that we're anticipating? We're eagerly and confidently looking forward to that. And you're going, okay, I, I kind of get that. I, I guess that means if I'm saved, that I should be looking forward to going to heaven. And I should be praising God. Yes! Right? But then he says, but here, now he's going to throw a zinger in there. He goes, but not only that, we're also going to praise God, and we're going to rejoice in our troubles. And you're going, whoa, hang on. He says, not only this, verse 3, but we also exalt, we boast in our tribulations, our troubles, our afflictions. Now, this is not what you'll sometimes hear with television preachers. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy and wealthy. The power of I am, we're told. And just, just, just believe and God's going to make everything great for you. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what it means to be a Christian. I remember one man that I led to Christ said to me, it seems like my troubles have gotten worse since I became a Christian. And I said, yes, in, in a certain way that might be true, circumstantially. But your condition has gotten a lot better. So Paul says, look, you're going to actually, as a Christian, learn how to praise God in our troubles. Why? Because these tribulations bring about perseverance. But but don't miss the the chain. Where is he going? Perseverance is going to bring proven character. So keep going. Then he says, and proven character hope. So see, that seems to be the theme here. If you're justified with God, it's going to bring about growing hope. Growing confidence, growing eagerness and expectation in heaven. Okay? So let's go back then to verse 1 and kind of walk through this. Justification increases our hope. So the first blessing, he says, look, if you're right with God, you have peace with God. Now, what does that mean to have peace with God? Well, we often sort of have an idea in our mind of what God thinks about us. Like, 
What do you think God thinks about you right now? Sometimes we're sort of like, I don't know. I'm probably kind of disappointed or he's kind of, he's kind of mad. I think he's mad at me, right? But the Bible says if you're a Christian, you have peace with God. From his standpoint, you are completely at a status of acceptance with God. There's no wrath. There's no condemnation. There's no reason for you to live with ongoing feelings of guilt. In, instead, God says, do you understand it? Let, 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 let's, let's change the way you view how I view you. You're good. I'm satisfied that Christ paid for your sins. I, I don't look at you anymore as this filthy sinner. You are, you are you're saved. You have peace with God. Now, there is a difference here between peace with God and experiencing the peace of God. Okay, peace with God is an objective truth. Christians always have peace with God. Christians do not always experience the peace of God. So maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're experiencing anxiety. You're worried, you're fearful, your soul's in turmoil. It might be over your circumstances. It might be over your sin. Sometimes it might even be partly some sort of your chemical makeup or just a variety of reasons why people get worked up into anxiety. So the peace of God is something that God grants Christians as we learn how to pray and trust Him. Philippians 4 says this, Be anxious for nothing. So, so we come into the house of God and we're like, I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about my marriage. Or I'm worried about my health. Or I'm worried about my job. Or I'm worried that someone's going to blow us all up. Look what's going on in France. Or I'm worried about life. I'm worried about my, will I ever get married? I'm worried, are we going to be able to pay the bills? There's just so many things that bring worry. I'm worried about my relationship with so-and-so. And God says, look, as you learn how to pray about these things, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring your requests to me. And then God says, the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind through Christ. Now, I think one of the reasons that we sort of, we look at that verse and we go, yeah, yeah, but it doesn't really work at home, is because we think it's instantaneous. So you have these severe marriage problems maybe that have taken years to develop, and you go, dear Jesus, please make my marriage problems go away. And then, and then you expect, oh, I feel such peace. I don't even know what I was, what was I praying about anyway? I, this is remarkable. It's beyond understanding. Why, why did I even get upset, right? I don't think that's God's normal way of, of, of increasing our peace and removing our anxiety. It's often a process. It's a journey where we're daily bringing our, our burdens to the Lord. The Bible says, blessed be the Lord. He daily bears our burdens. So, so I like to fish, right? When you fish, you have to cast, right? The Bible says, cast your cares upon the Lord, right? You ever take kids fishing? If you take one kid fishing, you're going to get half a day of fishing. You take two kids fishing, you're not going to get any fishing. I think I got one. I think I, they never leave it in the water. They're like, you'll never catch fish they leave it in there. We do that with our words. We cast them out to God. And we're like, I need to worry about it. You know, God, I need to help you out here. Did you ever think about that? So, so if you're not experiencing peace today, it doesn't mean you're a failure as a Christian, but God is inviting you to learn how to trust him, to learn how to keep praying about things. 
to learn how to, 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 to rest in his promises. And even though we saw Abraham in hope against hope. So continue to pray. Don't give up. Continue to ask God to give you peace, to sustain you. God is so good to us, and, and you're at peace with him, and he wants you to experience peace from him. Remember the songwriter said it this way, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So Paul says we have peace with God, but it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through what I did, it's through what he did. But then he says the second benefit is we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the word introduction is an interesting word in the original language. It literally was used of entrance into the presence of royalty, right? Think about that, entrance into the presence of royalty. Some of you have come back to me, yeah, we got to go to England recently, the family. We got to go to Buckingham Palace. But I guarantee you that you didn't just walk into the, to the palace and go, oh, hello, queen, how are you? How's it been? Oh, I love your robe. Beautiful. And, oh, gosh, um, that's a lovely. No, you, you and I don't have access into the presence of royalty, right? But when you become a Christian, it says we, it's like God hands you the key. And he says, here's the key to my, my throne of grace, the grace room. And you can come on in here, and you're welcome here. And notice how he words it. We have, we have access into this grace in which we stand. So the illustration I want you to use is the grace room, okay? Unbelievers live in the, either the I don't care about God room, right? They're irreligious. Or I've got to try my very best, the performance room. They're religious. I hope I'm doing enough. I hope I'm doing enough. And God goes, you don't need to do that, Christian. Come on into the grace room. You have access by faith in Jesus. He brings you in to the grace room. Well, what's it like in the grace room? Well, in the grace room, <clears throat> you're actually in the presence of God. It ought to incite you to pray more. In Hebrews 10, this, this is what draws me to pray more. What do you picture when you pray? God up there going, what do you want now? You know, with a lightning bolt. Make my day. Or do you picture a grandfather with a beard going, children, anything you want. I just love everybody. No. Here's God with Jesus at his side. And the Bible says, because Christ has entered into heaven for us, let us draw near with confidence. We have access through Christ into the presence of God. So when I pray, I picture myself entering into the presence of God. And he welcomes me. And he gives me his full attention. And the Bible calls his throne room the throne of grace. And the scripture says, draw near to that throne of grace. And he will give you grace and he will help you in your time of need. And it's such a wonderful thing to stand in the grace room because the grace room is all undeserved. You don't have to go, I hope I pray enough to get into the grace room. No, it's, not, it's nothing that we do. In fact, what the Bible teaches us is we have to stand the grace in which we stand. Satan is always saying, come on back out in the performance room. And God's going, no, just stand in grace. This is the very essence of what it means to believe the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the message by which you were saved, in which you stand. Stand firm in the merits of Christ. And stand in that place of saying, I'm accepted with God. I can talk to him anytime. I have this wonderful access into the presence of of the living God, and I stand in this ongoing, unending flow of grace. You say amen if you, if you appreciate that from God. But then Paul says, but listen, in addition, he says, we also exalt in our, or we exalt in hope of the glory of God. 
So what does it mean? It means that, that in Romans 1, it says, I once failed to give God glory. Unbelievers don't give him glory. In Romans 3, I learned that I was stripped of God's glory. All have sinned and lacked the glory of God. But now I have this future hope that one day I will fully experience the glory of God. He will pour out his glory into my life, and I will be transformed into the perfect presence and image of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that being glorified, and it's something God wants us to look forward to. It's going to be good. It's going to be moral perfection, completeness, restoration, fulfillment. The, song, the songwriter said it this way. I'm going to fix this while I'm talking. Somebody gave me this part. He goes, now you only have half a brain. So anyway, I'll just try it like this. He said, can't get no satisfaction. No, think about that. Can we ever get full satisfaction in this life, even as a Christian? No, because we weren't made for a sinful, fallen world. And so the full satisfaction will never happen in this world. We're always longing for that day when I'll never struggle anymore. The Bible says when Christ comes back, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. All of those things are passed away. So, so as a Christian, I go, man, praise God. I'm forgiven. I'm at peace with him. I have access to him. And I'm singing, I'm going to heaven, can't wait. But then he says, but while you're singing about looking forward to heaven, he says, you can also sing and praise God in your troubles. And this is where a lot of people want to get off the elevator. They're like, well, wait. Because we not only rejoice in hope of the glory of God when we see Jesus and we're transformed, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Now, that, that word literally means our, our afflictions. It comes from a word that means pressure. We exalt in our pressure. You know, come up with work. You have no idea the pressure I'm under, right? Well, if you're a Christian, we're always under pressure. Because we live in a fallen world. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, hates us. We're struggling against the world, against the flesh. The world hates us. And so being a Christian means that, you know what? Troubles are normal. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And you go, yeah, but I don't like troubles. Well, God didn't ask us to like troubles. So when you go, why am I having marriage problems? Why did I have to hear cancer? You know, on and on. Many of us are here with heavy hearts. God says, you can rejoice in your tribulations because you know that there's this design in them. They're ultimately going to make you like Christ and increase your hope. And that's what sustains us. So look what he says. Tribulations bring about perseverance. Now, perseverance is a quality. This word means a patient endurance. You see, the problem is there are a lot of people who profess to be Christians that quit, right? I used to be a born-again Christian. I used to be really studying the Bible. I used, listen, there's no such thing in Christianity as a used to be. You either still are or never were. Jesus said many people receive the word of God with joy, but when trouble comes, they fall away, right? Jesus said the real seed is the seed that falls on the good ground and brings, brings forth fruit with perseverance. So one of the things that God is, is, is working in my life through my troubles is he's teaching me not to quit. He's teaching me not to go, God, this is what I planned, and you didn't hear my prayers, and I'm through with you. Because tribulations produce 
perseverance. I'm not going to give up, Lord. I need you more than ever. They draw me. They bring me to my knees. God, help me. And then as I learn perseverance, he says, I'm developing the quality of tested and proven character. We've all had this experience. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain. I'm going to ask you to put on your seatbelts because we're going to experience some pretty severe turbulence. But what would happen if he said this? And as a matter of fact, it's turbulence like I've never seen. In fact, this is my first flight. And frankly, when I was in flight school, I did terrible on the turbulence scale. So I would get right with God if I was you. See, I don't want to be flying in a plane with someone who doesn't have any depth of proven character. So you become a Christian in your first storm. It's like, we're all going to die, right? But Jesus is building in us. You know, you, don't you remember what I did last time? You know, this, this is exactly what he was doing with the disciples. He'd feed 5,000, then he'd take a nap in the boat during the storm, and they're going, Jesus, wake up, man, we're going to die. And he goes, where's your faith? Didn't, 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 don't you remember what I did? And so this cannot come from book knowledge. You're like, why can't I just take a Bible study and learn proven character? It can't happen. There's a part of being a Christ-like Christian that can only happen through pain. In fact, we all want God to use us. Martin Luther once said, he doesn't usually use us greatly till he hurts us deeply. So I wish God just said, here's how the proven character thing works. What should you do when I give you troubles? A, get bitter. B, praise me and get better. I pick B. All done. God doesn't do it that way. But instead, I want to give you an illustration. God's goal is to make us like Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. But we're all messed up. We're like Humpty Dumpty with broken pieces all over again. I want you to think of those pieces as puzzle pieces, right? And God is putting together a puzzle. And whenever you put together a puzzle, you look at the picture, right? And the picture is Jesus. And you and I are looking like this, and God goes, but I want you to look like this. We've all had this experience of, finishing the puzzle, and there's a couple pieces missing. And we're like, and we either say to our wife, I told you not to get puzzles from the secondhand store. There's always something missing. Or we look over and there's Fido gone. And we're like, it's incomplete, right? So picture that God says this. He goes, without trials, there will be parts of your Christ-likeness that are incomplete. So James chapter 1 words it this way. Consider it all joy when you go through trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work. And listen to what he says. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if I could just get that in my mind, that God's giving me trouble, not because he's mad at me, not because he's playing with me, but he's purposefully transforming me into the image of Christ. It doesn't make them fun, but it gives me a perspective to say, God, this is hard, and I struggle. But Lord, I know that there's a reason for these things. And I, and I, I would rather you remove my pain. But if you choose not to, Lord, help me to respond with joy and praise, even through my tears, knowing that weeping will last for a night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Somebody said to me recently, I just don't feel like I fit in because I come to church and I look at everybody else and they're so happy and they seem to have it all together. 
I need to start giving out Emmys. You guys are great actors. I mean, you are good. People are coming in and visiting, and they're thinking, we have it all together. And we're so happy. We're not. We're, we're, we're fellow strugglers, right? And so it's okay to come to church. It's a hospital. We don't have to always say, fine, fine. I loved, if I was any finer, I couldn't stand it. Somebody say me that. I just want to smack on me this And he would always say that. If I was any better, I couldn't stand it. And I'm like, well, then stop taking those illegal substances, you know. (laughs) No one should be so good they can't stand it all the time. You're not engaged in the world. You're not fighting against sin. You're not praying for the lost. So, So, okay, God, I don't like this, but these troubles are ultimately leading not just to character, but hope. So as we go on to verse 5, let's look at the next slide. It says, this proven character leads me to hope, right? So when you, when you hear this noise, and you're in the middle of root canal, what's your hope? This is going to stop. It's not going to always be like this, right? You see, you never look forward to something like the cessation of pain, right? When's this going to stop hurting? And that's the whole point. As I'm in trouble in this life, it causes me to look forward to relief. And that's called hope. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this world not worthy to be, to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, so the Christian life, like people will say, oh, you know, Tom, you're getting old there. I'm not getting old. I'm going closer to glory, right? We sort of look like, oh, I'm getting all decrepit. I'm going going back to the grave. The Bible says the path of the righteous is like a burning light. It gets brighter and brighter until the full day. So, so I don't consider myself getting old. I consider myself getting closer to glory. I'm one step closer to leaving all my troubles behind and laying this creaky old body down and getting a brand new glorious body. And so this, this hope, you know, this is what sustains us. And the problem with American Christianity is, is we're so stinking comfortable, sometimes we forget this. I can tell you this, people all over the world are dying daily literally beaten and dying for Christ. Their hope is in high gear. They are praying and waiting, come, Lord Jesus, take me home. But yet, we can do that. We can say, God, life's tough now, but I pray that this would just cause me to praise you more because you're making me like Jesus, and it's only going to get better because when I see him, I'll be fully like him. So, justification brings hope. But the second thing we're going to learn is that love's realization brings hope. Realizing God's love should cause me to grow in a greater hope. Now, how do most people determine that God loves them? Most people determine God's love for them by their circumstances. God must hate me, you know. Remember the old story I told you about the little dog was lost. It said on the on the telephone pole, lost dog, one-legged, blind, twisted tail, answers to lucky. And you're like, lucky, right? And so we sort of, we sort of go, if God loved me, why, why, why is my marriage in shambles? Why, why, why did I lose? Why did my parents, why did this happen? Why do I have this illness? Why? And the problem is we're looking at our circumstances and, and we're going, listen, those are a bad way to measure God's love. So what Paul's going to tell us as Christians is that there's two ways that Christians realize and experience and become assured of God's love. One is subjective, and the other one's objective. I think sometimes 
Christians are afraid of feelings. Like, we're not supposed to have feelings, you know. Our Christianity is right here. It's between these four walls of our cerebellum, right? It's okay to have feelings as a Christian and, and to express those feelings in praise and joy and sorrow and gratitude. But one of the things Paul's going to tell us is that we as Christians experience God's love subjectively. Look what he says. He says, hope doesn't disappoint us. In fact, that word probably should be translated, will not disappoint us. When we get to the gates of heaven, there's, there's a number of manuscripts that have this in the future tense. If you hope and look for God in your troubles, you're not going to be disappointed. That was a message of the Old Testament. God's not going to go, JK, you thought it was going to be like this, but it's not. So hope will not disappoint us because we've all, we know God's going to keep his word because we've already experienced a measure of his love. I think he's talking about the normal experience for a Christian is when you become a Christian, in some subjective way, you experience that God actually loves you. Is this something, you know, it doesn't mean you fell on the ground and started weeping because God loves me. Some people have that. But yet, there's a subjective side. He goes, think back. He goes, the reason you know that God loves you is because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The moment you became a Christian, the Bible says the Holy Spirit entered into your life. And he's the the person of the triune God who brings a measure of the experience of God's love to you, you, where you have some sense of a subjective experience that God loves you. I hope all of you have experienced this. I hope there's been a time, whether you were singing Jesus Loves Me or Amazing Grace, or somehow you heard something that the Spirit of God took from God's Word and just assured you that, yes, I love you. And sometimes that leads us, you know, this is why people write songs like, Amazing Grace, it saved a wretch like me. So if you have never experienced that that love of God that was poured out into your heart, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But there's nothing wrong with praying for that. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, now you're getting all kind of weirded out on me. No, this is biblical. I think this is exactly what Paul prayed for in Ephesians Chapter 3. I want you to take a look at this prayer sometime. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Paul said this, I'm praying for you that God will strengthen you through the Holy Spirit in your inner man. So you can pray this. God, strengthen me and my family through the Holy Spirit in my inner man. And then he says this, so that Christ will dwell in your heart through faith. Now Christ is already in you, but he will dwell. He will He will. He will make his home. He will freely reign in your heart as Lord of your life. And then Paul says this, so that with all the other saints, you might know, know, experience, not just hear, the height and depth and breadth, and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. It's not just an intellectual ascent. Jesus loves me. But it's this experience of the love of God, which Paul says, and you'll be filled with the fullness of God. Somebody say amen to that. Can we please stop just being cerebral? It's important to keep our Christianity doctrinal. But it's just as important that we ask God to help us to to let it affect our entire being. Right? And so pray for that. And, 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 And here's the thing. Even if you go, you know what? I've never once felt God's love for me. 
In fact, this morning, I wonder if he loves me. I got good news for you. God's love is not just subjective. It's objective. Okay? So if you're like, I'm not a feely-wheelie person. That quiver and the liver stuff don't do nothing for me. Fine. Because God's love isn't just subjective. Look, look at verses 6 and following where Paul's going to say, listen, it's not just the Spirit pouring out God's love. It's the reality of the cross. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ did what? Christ died for the ungodly. So, so here's the point. You want to know God if God loves you? Don't look at your circumstances. And if right now you're not feeling it, then just look at the cross and say, Jesus, do you love me? How much do you love me? You'll go like this. Right there. So much I love you. I gave myself for you. At the right time, whether that was the time that we needed it or the fullness of time in God's sovereignty, Christ died while we were ungodly. And then Paul kind of uses an argument. He goes, you know your, your banker who always charges you a late fee if you're late? He wouldn't dare to give you a, a free pass because he's righteous. He says, one would hardly die for a righteous man, you know, if your banker was, was getting robbed. And you might go out and help him. He says, perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates. Now, there it is. He demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if ever you're tempted to go, I don't know if you love me, God, because why are these bad things happening? He goes, don't look at your circumstances. Go back to Calvary. You need a demonstration of my love. I don't need to pour out a miracle on you. Look at the cross. You can be sure that I love you. In fact, God's going, what more could I do? The scripture says, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? So what a blessing to go, oh, God, I don't deserve it. I'm ungodly. I'm weak. I'm a sinner. But I can be certain of this, that you love me. I want to experience it subjectively, but I have the promises objectively, and they produce a greater hope. But the last thing that we're going to look at, real quick, is verses 9 through 11. Because justification brought hope, love's realization brings hope, but reconciliation also brings hope. Now Paul's going to move to relational terms. You see, Romans 1 to 4 is very legal, you know, condemned by the judge, justified by grace. But Romans 5 is very relational. This is the first time we've learned about God's love. It's not just God's love. Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming, going, why are you sending me? The Bible says Christ gave himself because of his love for us. But notice 9 through 11. Paul's fond of going, if this, then this. He goes, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If you're afraid of God, on the one hand, that's a good thing. Many people are going to hell because they don't have a fear of God. But some of you, because of your religious background or your view of God, you're really afraid to die because you're like, I'm screwed. When I stand before him, I know what I deserve. This verse is so comforting, right? How many times have you heard me say, when God says to you, why should I let you into heaven? You ought to have a verse in your heart. This is one I grab onto. I'm not going to go, well, I'm Pastor Tom. I should get hit. No, I'll be because of the blood of Jesus. Having been justified by his blood, I'll be saved from your wrath. You say amen to that and cling to that. 
You tell a lot by how a man lives, but also by how he dies. You and I can, can die at peace if we believe that. That because of the blood of Jesus, I'm saved. I don't have to be afraid that God's going to go, you know what, you didn't quite make it. Justified by his blood, I'm saved from wrath through him. Praise him. Look at this. Thank you, Jesus. Right? But verse 10 says, For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. The word reconciled means to, to restore or bring about a relationship. I watched a video last night put out by World Team that had a Spanish man, and this Spanish guy was telling his testimony in Spain. He goes, and he starts weeping. He goes, I never knew that I could have a personal relationship with God. And he just starts sobbing, right? And for us, we're like, he didn't know that? <laughs> Listen, this is remarkable that God would reconcile us and give us a personal, we're his friends, we're his children. We're saved by his blood and we're saved, look at here, Paul, Paul includes the resurrection, we're saved by his life. So, so when I get to heaven, I'm not going to go. Because remember that guy that's down there in the grave down there that died for me? He's going to be standing right next to him. He's risen. You're supposed to say amen. He's risen. He's at the right hand of God. He's risen indeed. And because he's risen, he stands in intercession for me. And I'll come right into heaven through Christ. You see how Christ-centered this is? And not only this, Paul says, we rejoice in God through through whom we have now received a reconciliation. So you go, wow, I should, be, I should be a hopeful person. I shouldn't just be going, oh, man, life is horrible. I'm justified. And God's putting me through troubles because it's just going to grow me into Christ and give me hope. And God, God loves me. And because he loves me, I can look forward with hope. And God reconciled me, and because he reconciled me, nothing to be afraid of. So, so here's, here's the application. Number one, Notice how Christ-centered this is. Paul keeps saying, we're at peace with God through Christ. We have access to God through Christ, through his blood, through his life. You see, true Christian worship is very Christ-centered. We boast in God. God doesn't get jealous when we glory in Christ. He doesn't go, what about me? Right? That's how he's glorified. The Bible says, he has exalted him and given him the name above all names, Jesus Christ our Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So this week I want to encourage you to get on your knees and just boast and worship and praise God through Jesus for the cross. And then, and then get on your knees and say, God, I'm going through a lot of troubles. And, and, and it's like Satan's throwing grenades at me. And you can either catch those grenades and let them blow you into the ground, or you can just, by faith, just trust God in spite of those grenades and let him propel you forward. Satan, those grenades aren't stopping me. They're just pushing me closer to Jesus. They're just causing me to increase in hope because nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I hope your, 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 your assurance of the grace of God is growing. Live in the grace room this week. Not to perform. You're standing in grace. And let's pray that as a church, the Bible says, pray that we all, together with all the saints, will know and experience the love of Christ. And then as others come in, that we will welcome them into this fellowship of God's love where we're discipling people into the image of Christ. If you're not sure you have peace with God, talk to us before you leave. God wants to give you that certain assurance. And if you are, if you go, I get it and I believe it, then talk about it. Tell us. Confess it with your mouth and say, 
When can I get baptized and testify of God's grace in your life? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is such a blessing to know that we have hope, unshakable hope in Jesus. We praise you, God, through Jesus. We give you all the glory for Jesus. We stand together in the gospel through Jesus. And I pray for us as a church that more and more your love will be poured out into our broken hearts. And even through the tears this morning, may we praise you because we know their purpose and we know they'll increase our hope. And may you continue to open sinners' eyes that they might join us standing in the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.